Matthew 13, verses 47 to 52 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 13, 47 to 52. There has been, over the past several decades, a bit of a crisis inside the, uh, the church in America. There was a big transition for a long time where so-called successful churches and bigger churches had transitioned to this uh, seeker-sensitive model. And it came from Chicago and California and various other places and uh, where churches there were growing and were having tons of people come into their services. And they had kind of presented this model as a better model for doing church where uh, seeker sensitivity was the key. And to be seeker sensitive as it went, you uh, basically spent less, a little bit less time in the direct study of the scriptures uh, a little bit more time in talking in general about the love of God and the death of Christ for other people, and less time spent talking about the wrath of God. Because as the argument goes, when people come in to sit in your pews, the last thing that they want to hear about is judgment. The last thing they want to hear about is sin- sinning and how, uh, how much of a sinner they are. And the last thing they want to hear about th- is those things. And to be truly loving to people, what we really need to tell them is how loving Christ is toward them and how accepting Christ is toward them. And so we look at one truth of Scripture as being more important than others. This morning we're looking in our text in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at two parables. The first, Jesus is going to reiterate again for us the reality of hell. And then the second, he's going to challenge us as discerning hearers what we should do about those realities and the things that he has taught. And the question that we're going to be asking is how can we as a church, how can we be truly loving in what we tell the culture around us? Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 and following. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? They said to him, yes. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to understand the text that is in front of us. Help us to understand the stark realities that are presented there. Help us to think about what that means for us and apply it to our lives that we may leave this room changed, having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapters 11 to 13 of Matthew, uh, we're seeing the varying responses that people are giving to the kingdom. 
They're responding to Jesus. They're responding to his kingdom. And we're seeing some that are responding with curiosity. They're not quite sure what to make of this Jesus. We saw this in John the Baptist as an example. You remember he sends his emissaries to Jesus and they ask him, are you the one or should we expect another to come? So there's people like John the Baptist who are in some level of doubt in chapters 11 to 13. There are others who are decided, in fact, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Remember, Jesus prays for these people. He says, thank you, Father, this is in chapter 11, thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. These little children are not literally little kids that he's talking about. He's talking about the ones that have decided that he is the Messiah. God has revealed that to them. And then there is another group of people in these chapters that are decided that he is not the Messiah. And most of these are the scribes and the Pharisees that are completely against the idea, the very notion that Jesus might be the Messiah. And they're asking him, they're tempting him, they're trying him to give them a sign. We're going to see in the next, uh, where we're going to be next week, that even Jesus' own family and his own town feel this way about it. They're decided that he's not the Messiah. Well, in chapter 13, Jesus has given us eight parables about the kingdom of heaven. And all of these parables help explain something about the acceptance or rejection of Jesus and this kingdom. In the parable of the sower and the seeds, Jesus says the sower goes out to sow. And the difference there is that some seed falls along different places, but ultimately the ones that receive and truly believe in the kingdom that he is proclaiming, their lives will ultimately bear fruit. The people that receive rightly the kingdom of heaven will bear fruit over time. Their lives will prove that they have believed it. Then we get to the parable of the weeds, and there's the people that reject and the people that truly receive, and Jesus says they're going to grow up together They're going to grow up in this world together, the sons of the devil and the sons of the kingdom, and then they will be sorted out in the end, but it's going to take some time for them to grow up. We see in the next two parables that those that receive the kingdom are going to start off as a really small group of people. They'll start off really small, and then they're going to spread around the world. But the ones that truly receive the kingdom will start off as a small group and eventually permeate the entire world. And then still in two more parables, the ones that we looked at last week, we saw that the one that truly receives the kingdom, that really does believe the gospel that is being proclaimed, won't just walk away in apathy but will receive it in joy and they will be radically transformed to the point where everything else in this life is held in an open hand. Their value system is completely upended. In our text this morning, we have two final parables. Parables 7 and 8 in this chapter. And in the first, Jesus is going to come back to the penalty that is reserved for those that reject him and the kingdom. And all of that happens at the end of the age. But then in the second, we're going to see what all this has to do with those that have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. You might ask, well, if I've received the kingdom of heaven, if I am truly in the kingdom of heaven, 
then what all does this have to do with me? What responsibility do I have? There are two observations that I want us to see about these two parables. The first is that the penalty for rejecting Jesus is high. The penalty for rejecting Jesus is high. Jesus comes back to a very similar statement that he has made in a previous passage, just a few verses before in verses 40, 41, 42. He comes back to this same statement that he has made earlier uh, when it came to the parable of the weeds. But I didn't deal with it much a couple of weeks ago because I knew we were coming to this where we're going to deal squarely with this uh, same uh, statement nearly, and it was all going to be concerning the judgment at the end of the age. The best part about the first parable is that Jesus is going to explain it to us which is really helpful and really nice anytime that happens. But the second parable is going to be a little bit more difficult because Jesus doesn't explain it at all. He just assumes that we understand it. So the parable of the weeds was most likely um, talking about the long delay that's going to take place between the sowing of the seed and the ultimate harvest that's going to come. So what Jesus was underscoring in that passage, in that parable of the weeds, is that the apocalyptic kingdom that you're looking for is not going to come immediately. It's going to take some time. Both seeds are going to grow up together. We're going to harvest them all together, and then we're going to separate them. And so the idea that was being communicated was not so much necessarily on the judgment at the end of the age, though he does mention it. It was mostly on the time that it was going to take for them to grow up. This parable, however, is focused on final judgment. It's simple enough to understand the image that Jesus is presenting, but I want to go through it just to make sure we're on the same page about Jesus' explanation. First, there is a net in the first parable in verse 47. There's a net thrown out into the sea. And when you see that image of a fisherman, a net being cast out and capturing fish, many of us, our minds might tend to go to evangelism. We might think about being fishers of men or something like that, and some have interpreted this parable that way. But if you think about this parable that way, and if you think that's what Jesus is communicating, you're going to come up with probably a different interpretation than I think that is intended. You might think that this parable is about the Lord waiting until evangelism is completed before judgment or something like that, but that's not what is going on here. And we know that mainly um, he's not talking about that because... Uh, he uses the, the term net is used as a dragnet. The idea is a dragnet that's being tossed out into the sea and it's tied, usually tied in the first century between two boats and then there would be a rope on the shore that would be pulled in by several men and they would be capturing fish of all kind, undiscriminating. They just pull in every fish that they can possibly imagine. So the image here is the gathering of all humanity that is to happen at the end of the age. We see that in verse 49 in the explanation. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels come out and separate the evil from the righteous. We see a similar picture just a few verses earlier in verse 41. You can look up your page there. And it says, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. So he's separating the unrighteous there. Now, we know that it's not only the ones that are the sinners and the lawbreakers that are gathered up in this reaping. 
How do we know that? Well, Matthew 24, 31 gives us a very similar picture. But this time it's the other side. He says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. So the picture is this great reaping that occurs over the earth that takes place at the end of the age when all people are gathered together in this, what Jesus depicts here in this parable, sort of a metaphorical net. It captures them all. And then there's the separation. This is what a group of fishermen would do as they pull in this net, this drag net from the sea. They would separate the fish of all kinds. Now, when you're a Jew, you pay particular attention to the kinds of foods you can and cannot eat. And some of those are fish. You cannot eat fish without scales. Fish without scales are of the devil. I think all fish may be of the devil, but who knows? Um, uh, so fish without scales are unclean. So like catfish are sorted out, are thrown out. Eels maybe all thrown out. And so the unclean fish are separated away. And what you get is the clean, the usable, the edible, the good fish. The fish are then sorted in the bad ones that he identifies. He calls them bad there in verse 48. They're thrown out. Jesus gives us the meaning in verse 50. He says they're thrown and he says... Into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus has used this phrase before when it comes to eternal punishment weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here he says it is the fiery furnace. In chapter 8, verse 12, it's the place of outer darkness. In places like Matthew 23, 33, he depicts this same final judgment scene, but he says that they're thrown into Gehenna. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to Gehenna? The ESV translates it hell, but the word that he uses is Gehenna. It's a place, it's a location called Gehenna. It's in the valley of Hinnom that sits just on the outside of Jerusalem. And it is the place of outer darkness. It is the place where the Jews would burn their trash. It's the place in the Old Testament where there was child sacrifice from the Jews. It's a detestable rubbish heap of a valley where they would throw all of their trash and burn it. It's the place where all refuse was burned Jesus associates the final judgment of hell with the place where Jews burned their garbage. A place that they would all know very well. So for the disciple listening, the interpretation of what Jesus is saying here is entirely consistent with everything that he's said so far. That he's mentioned a number of times in this gospel. So this parable is very simple and it's intentionally gut-wrenching. Jesus is teaching that at the end of the age, all people will be gathered up and the bad or evil, he says in verse 49, will be separated from the righteous and thrown into hell for eternity. Jesus uses the image of a fiery furnace and the weeping and gnashing of teeth because it's a place of unspeakable agony 
and unending pain. A place filled with tears and the grinding of teeth so that you can endure the pain. And it is reserved for those that reject Jesus and His kingdom. You may have noticed that as we've gone through the book of Matthew, Jesus has mentioned eternal destiny a number of times. This particular eternal destiny a number of times. And His warnings have been particularly poignant. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 27? Eight years ago, I think, when we started that. He was talking there about lust. And he said this, You have heard it said, that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna, into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is a warning to you and to me. Why? So that we wouldn't make peace with sin. Why does Jesus care that we not make peace with sin? Because of hell. That's why. Chapter 18, He will tell those who bring temptation to others, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Why? Why would it be better to tie a massive rock around your neck and drown in the ocean? Why would that be better? Because of the eternal realities of hell. That's why. Because of what is coming. If you read through the Gospels, you can barely make it a few chapters without Jesus mentioning something about hell, about judgment, or fire, or punishment for unbelief of some kind. In fact, Jesus mentions the severity of eternal judgment so much, it makes you wonder how the seeker-sensitive movement in churches ever got started in the first place. It certainly wasn't by teaching the words of Jesus. How did we get to the point in our pulpits where hell was talked about so infrequently? How did we get to the point in our evangelism where we thought a better approach was to soft-pedal judgment and focus more on the love of God as if the two can be divided? Because it raises the question, how can you know the love of God unless you know the great lengths that He has gone through to spare you of coming judgment? Because it's not as though those that are in hell are there for no reason. 
One of the most chilling and poignant passages in all of Scripture to me, in my opinion, is in John chapter 3. The whole chapter. But, but John chapter 3. And it's ironic because it's the very same chapter that has potentially the most famous verse in all of Scripture. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not uncommon to see this verse reference on signs at football games, on t-shirts, various other locations, and rightfully so. There's probably not one verse in all of Scripture that better puts before someone the offer of eternal life, the salvation that is available to an individual. Literally, it's saying, believe in Jesus and have eternal life. In fact, you might say that is the theme statement, the purpose statement of the entire book of John. John actually tells you that. But not many will read through to the end of the chapter and see the final verse, verse 36, where John, the author, picks up on this statement that Jesus made in 3.16. And he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Yes, that's true. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But then he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. You see the picture. Hell is not filled with people who slip through the hand of God and in spite of His best efforts are suffering there in a fire so hot that God can't reach His hand down in there and save them lest He burn Himself. They are suffering His wrath. This is why Jesus uses the image of a dump where the Jews burn their trash. A roaring and unquenchable blaze filled with things that are there for a reason. Let me ask you. These are rhetorical questions. I know the answer, and I know you know the answer to these. Do you want to be on the wrong end of the wrath of God? No. Do you want your kids to be there? No. What about your family? Do you want your family to be there? No. Do you want your friends to be there? Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in hell and all he wants besides a drop of water to touch his tongue is for someone, even Lazarus, to go back to his sons and to just tell them so that they won't end up there. The culture would like nothing more for us to shut up about eternal punishment. Just be quiet about hell. And if you do talk about anything, just stick to the love of God part. That's fine. After all, you draw more flies with honey, don't you? Isn't that conventional wisdom? But you have to ask yourself, if that's the case, 
Why did Jesus mention it so much? Why did Jesus talk about it so much? Jesus talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. You know that? He talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. And he paints starker realities when it comes to hell. So we shouldn't be afraid to preach about it, to tell people about it, and to warn people about it. However, it's also disturbing how callously some Christians will throw it in the face of the unbelieving community. So disturbing, in fact, that the way some Christians will say things like turn or burn makes you question and makes me wonder if they even believe it. Do you understand what you're saying when you put that phrase on a sign for everyone to see as they drive by? Do you understand the stark realities and the nonchalant way that you are presenting that to people? Do you understand how that appears, what that sounds like? Because as a Christian, if you really believed what you're saying, if that person rejects Christ, are you not to weep over the fact that this person is resigned to an eternity of utter anguish, completely devoid of the goodness of God and facing only His wrath? And see, it doesn't matter at that moment if they're not scared of an eternity of, uh, in hell or not. Because if Jesus is to be believed, and I think He is, it will be. But just like we can refuse to teach about hell, to talk about hell, to share about hell in the gospel that we present, the pendulum can swing the other way too, where we're so calloused in our approach to hell and so stark as we paint the realities that we, all we end up doing is producing a handful of converts that are not truly interested in Christ, but are only seeking what has been called fire insurance. But understand that a true believer is not merely one that is wanting to get out of hell. The previous parables disabuse us of that notion. It's a person that is so enthralled by the treasure that he has found in Christ that it upends his entire value system and that he will do anything that he can to possess it. So in other words, there's no such thing as fire insurance. It's not a real thing. One who is merely possessing faith in Christ simply because of a deterrent of hell, but hasn't found the joy in Christ or the wonder and beauty and majesty of God, has not found Christ at all. We must instead paint the whole picture. Friend, the stakes for rejecting Jesus are high. Hell is real. Those who do not believe will surely face the wrath of God. It will put you in a place of an eternity in utter anguish. But my friend, 
How fortunate are we? How fortunate are we that though we all deserve this kind of judgment, God has spared us by graciously saving us by His grace through faith in Christ who bore God's wrath on our behalf. Friend, the wrath of God does not have to remain on you. See, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Ought you not at this moment to confess your sins to Him now? Ought you not at this moment to turn to Christ and give Him your entire life And be saved. The penalty for rejecting Jesus is high. But the second thing that I want you to see, the threshold for rejecting Jesus is low. The threshold for rejecting Jesus is low. In the second part of this little passage, we get this curious couple of verses where Jesus doesn't really explain. And if there's any parable in this chapter that's going to give us a little bit of difficulty, it's likely to be this one. First, he asks them if they understand. He says, do you understand these things? And I think by these things, he's looking at least as far back as verse 36. In verse 36 is where they go into the house and Jesus is teaching them privately. And there's, there's no indication that they change the scenery at all. So all the indication is that this is inside a house. These are some more or less private parables with his disciples. And he's explaining to these things to them. So he asks them the question, do you understand these parables? And the disciples answer, yes. Now, they're a little bit overconfident in what exactly they understand, and we'll find that out in a couple chapters. But needless to say, right now, they're like, yeah, we get it. And, and if they, maybe they just don't want to admit that they don't know. That's fine. But nevertheless, they say yes. Now, hold on to that, because I think that helps us understand the purpose of the parable coming up. Jesus is calling them, the ones that understand, the ones that are there in the house, Jesus is calling them scribes who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Remember that every parable that he gives in chapter 13 is all about the kingdom of heaven. So in understanding, they are now scribes that have been trained to understand the kingdom of heaven. The scribe is, is a, someone that they would know in Jewish circles who has the authority not only to understand the law and interpret it, but then to actually teach it to others. The scribe is responsible for teaching. And so he says the scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now put yourself back in first century. You don't have storehouses. You don't have very many closets. In fact, most houses would have, if anything, would have one room in the center of the house that would have a locked door. The rest of the house was relatively open, so there wasn't a lot of room to like store things or collect junk. They were notorious purgers. My wife would love them. Okay, so that's where they are. They don't have much room to store. And so if you've got anything 
tucked away for safekeeping, you have to understand that that thing is incredibly valuable. It's got to be incredibly valuable. So here's the master of the house, the owner of the home. He has valuable things that are new and valuable things that are old. So this master of the house has things that he might bring out. He says, for his guests, this might be to impress people. This might be to entertain people. We don't really know. It's not really important. The important element of this is that Jesus is saying that you, scribe, trained for the kingdom of heaven, you have treasure that is new and old. Not just old. Most things that are valuable are going to be old. They're going to maintain their value and they're going to increase. These things are new and old. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, he's told them a bunch of new information about the kingdom of heaven. He's given them a bunch of new information about himself as king. He's the sower of seeds, right? He's told them about how the sons of the kingdom are going to grow alongside the sons of Satan. He told them about how the judgment is going to happen at the end of the age. He's told them it's going to be a while before that takes place. It's not happening immediately like all the other Jews think it's going to be. He's given them things that before now, before this very moment, have been things that have been hidden in the mind of God. Things that God is now revealing in Christ slowly, first to them, then to the world. And they've said, we understand these things. He's even told them back in verse 11 that to them it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They're discerning, they're hearing things in his teaching and they're going, wait a second, I, I, what, is, what are you talking about there? That's different than what I've heard before. And he's telling them, yes, you have ears to hear So they've been taught to see the division between good seed and bad seed and to see it right there in the community of Jews. Would you think about that for just a second? In the community of Jews that they've been living in, now they're seeing a discrepancy between good seed and bad seed, sons of the kingdom and sons of Satan in the midst of the group of Jews that they've lived with. So the point is that they've been given some new treasure He has discipled them. He has taught them. And by their understanding, they now know that God's plan of redemption is culminating in Jesus Christ. They're on the inside track. They've been told the information before anyone else has. They also now realize that all things point to Christ. All things in before and all things now point to Christ as their Savior. Now, what is this old treasure? What is the old then, if that's the way of understanding it? The the old is God's working through salvation history. Mostly recorded in what we call the Old Testament. See, the disciples, because now they understand what God's plan has been building to in Jesus Christ all this time, they are now able to point to the Old Testament and tell people what God was building toward in all of this that was happening in the Old Testament. He's building toward saving them in Jesus Christ. As an example, they understand, and you do too, the proper meaning of the Passover lamb. 
Don't you? You understand what the Passover lamb is teaching. Jews in that day did, did not know what was ultimately culminating in Passover lamb. They understand the true meaning of the Jewish feasts and festivals. Now, we may not be able to recite them on the spot, but we should know, right? We've been given the information. They understand the treasures of the Old Testament prophecies and that they have their fulfillment in Christ. And they're understanding how these passages are going to be fulfilled in that they understand the parables that Jesus is teaching them. You and me and the disciples are standing on the same footing now. We all have the lights turned on. You might say we are all scribes of the kingdom of heaven. So he says the scribe that has been trained for the kingdom brings out these treasures both what is new and what is old. Now, what does that mean for the scribe of the kingdom of heaven to bring out what is new and what is old? It means that he trains others. It means that the discipled now becomes the discipler. In fact, the word that he uses there, that you've been trained, is literally the word you have been discipled. The one who has been discipled teaches others. You see, he's putting on them an impetus. Ones who have been discipled, you have treasure. Bring it out. You have treasure. You're sitting on it. Bring it out for others. You're like the master of a house. Everyone that is a follower of Christ that is in this room is like the master of a house who has new and old treasures. You have the whole story. You have the full picture. You have the key. You have the message that leads people to eternal life. And the one that has been discipled, you might say the one that truly believes in the treasure that he has, displays the treasure. In this little closing parable, Jesus is giving them an honorable position. Scribe. You're a scribe that has been trained for the kingdom. But also, he's implying a mission. You don't just have an honorable position. You have a responsibility. You're sitting on treasure. And the responsibility is to display it. In chapter 28, he'll give them what we call the Great Commission. That we take that on our own shoulders, right? Because we understand intuitively that we are also trained likewise as the disciples are. But if you string these parables together, particularly the parable of the treasure hidden in a field and the pearl of great price with this one, you see the picture of a person who has found such a great treasure, who has found such a wealth of insight into God's plan of salvation for humanity that he or she cannot keep quiet about what he or she possesses. Isn't this what the disciples say when they're told in Acts 4? Don't go around preaching. They say, we can't keep quiet. But take a closer look at the church today. 
Most everyone in this room fits the bill of scribes that have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. But most Christians in most churches are content to go to church on Sunday and will live their lives never having discipled a soul and probably never having shared the gospel. I know I'm, I'm probably generalizing a little bit here, but many people in our churches have very little direct impact on someone who is spiritually more immature than they are. Direct impact, not just an influence of life or as they've watched you from a distance, but direct impact, sitting across the table from someone, showing them how to read the Bible, showing them how to follow Christ, praying with them, encouraging them, lifting them up, directly involved in someone's life, discipling them. Many Christians won't share the gospel with unbelievers. They won't teach young believers to obey all that Christ has commanded us. But let me ask you something. If you had played the lottery and you had the winning ticket, you won $600 million. How many people would you tell? I'd be willing to bet you'd be chomping at the bit, not only to tell people, but to take that money and to do something good with it. You probably all know in your head the things that you would do. You'd probably buy your mom a house, or you'd get your best friend out of debt, or you'd be chomping at the bit to show other people how much good this money will actually do for the community around me. We often think that rejection of Jesus and his kingdom is about the atheists. It's all about the ones that say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in that God stuff. And that's true. It's, that's rejection of Jesus for sure. But it's not just about the atheist. It's also about the apathetic. Everywhere in Scripture, the apathetic are called out as not real believers But it's not as though if you share the gospel with somebody, you've achieved salvation. That's not the marker of salvation. Judas shared the gospel. It's that gospel sharing and discipling of others comes from a heart that understands what kind of treasure it really has. It has treasure of new and old. It has the key to salvation. You have understood what it means to be saved. And you have the key in the gospel message to give someone a hope for eternity instead of despair in hell. What do we do with this? Jesus will tell the disciples in Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51, he says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must be found doing. He has put us on a mission and that is what we are to do. We have to work Are you more mature in faith than build a relationship with someone in this church that is not mature in faith? Connect, which is our college ministry, is a great way to do that. I'm not calling you all immature, okay? But it's a great way to do that. To build relationships with somebody that is younger than you. That is no doubt younger in faith than you. To get to know a college student, to just encourage them, to build them up, to allow them to see your life as one lived in faith. It's simply just a way to bring them close and to let them see what it looks like to live as a Christian at 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 85 or 90. How far do you want me to go? Keep going. (laughs) A hundred? To just bring them in and let them know what it looks like to see children that go off to college. To let them know and anticipate what it looks like to struggle with death and disease. What it looks like to live in faith. That it doesn't change all that much. You still have temptations, you still have struggles. This is what it looks like to live in faith, to pray for them, to pray with them. You engage in those discipling relationships. The point is that if we want to be truly loving to the culture, we have to warn them. We have to tell them, as Jesus did, about the realities of hell. We have to share with them the gospel. We have to disciple them. Train them up. The stakes are incredibly high. 